You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from David Whistle. Amen. Good morning. If you're new with us, we're uh, in the very middle, week three of a sermon series called Missio Day. And each week in this series, we've just been exploring this very simple question, what does it look like to be on mission with Jesus and for Jesus in Baltimore and in the world? And this week, we're going to be looking at the topic of doubt and deconstruction. And you, you might wonder, like, what, is, what does dealing with doubt have to do with mission? Like, that seems like the opposite of mission, right? Well, stay tuned. I think as we work through the text, you're going to see that addressing doubt is actually very, very relevant for being on mission. So deconstruction is a word that's pretty, pretty hot right now. It's pretty trending. It seems like every other week there is a story in The Atlantic or The Washington Post about a famous Christian leader or a famous Christian musician that announces that they're no longer Christian. They're done with Christianity or, at the very least, they're done with certain forms of Christianity. There's a man named Abraham Piper who's been making quite a splash lately. So Abraham is the son of John Piper. Actually, one of the books I got as a gift is by John Piper. I didn't know that. So Abraham, son of John Piper, who's one of the most popular preachers in the world. And Abraham, he's been making headlines because he's been making these videos on TikTok. And so Abraham's actually an atheist, and he's been posting these funny videos making fun of Christianity. And he's amassed quite a following. Like, he has over a million followers on TikTok, which I looked it up. It's the same number that his father, John, has on Twitter. So think about that. Like John has spent 40 years preaching and writing books. And he's got a million followers on Twitter. This guy spent like four months making videos on TikTok and he has a million followers. He's preaching against what his dad preached. You know, and at a more personal level, I've seen a couple people I know say they're leaving the faith. They're walking away from Jesus over the years as they've been a Christian. And uh, I'm sure you can think of people in your life who may have done the same thing. And, you know, each of these deconversion stories... They have different nuances, but more often than not, they follow like this predictable plot line. Like you can kind of guess what they're going to say. Like it might go something like this. Like I grew up in church. I never knew anything else. But then I found this one question, this one idea that no one was talking about, no one told me about. And then I finally had the courage to ask those questions and then I left. And now I'm so much better off without the oppressive shackles of Christianity or the church. I'm finally my authentic self. And what I find so interesting about these stories is that the person in these stories often presents themselves as being like this like free thinker. Like I'm finally living my own truth. But what I find ironic about a lot of people who say they're living their own truth is that most of them end up coming to basically the same conclusions on matters like spirituality, sexuality, and gender. Like, they're all living the same truth. Like, the person who deconverts from Christianity is not any more authentic or free from dogma than they were before. They just traded Christian doctrines for secular progressive doctrines. And I say all that because when we hear about deconversion in, like, popular culture, it's often presented as being like this brave and radical and countercultural thing. But the reality is that a person who deconverts is 
just getting swept up with the tide. They're just getting swept up with the cultural current. It's not brave, authentic, or countercultural to walk away from Jesus. What's actually countercultural is faithfully following Jesus. So, our text for this morning, it's one of my favorites, and actually probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. And it shows us that, one of the things it shows us that doubt and deconstruction, they're nothing new. Like, people have been rejecting and walking away from Jesus ever since his public ministry started. And thankfully, the Bible gives us rich resources with doubt. And we're going to look at just one of those today in John chapter 6. And so kind of zooming out to the Gospel of John, its author, the Apostle John, actually says he wrote his account with a specific intention, intention of helping people who are struggling with doubt. He writes in John 20 that he wrote his Gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So honestly, I think the word doubt can be a little unhelpful. Like, it's an overly simple word for what's often a complex phenomenon. We slap the word doubt onto a number of problems that are actually very different from each other. And counselors will tell you that it's important to name your emotions so you can deal with them better. So in the same way, I want, I want us to name the different kinds of doubt we may experience as a Christian. And I think doing this will help us not only work through our own doubts, but will also be better at helping others with theirs. So there's two basic kinds of doubt, from what I can tell, what we may face. One, there's a doubt in the sense of lacking assurance of salvation. Like, does Jesus really love me? You're not sure that you're a genuine Christian. And then there's doubt in the more intellectual sense. Like, is this all just one big fairy tale? You're not sure that Christianity is even true. And John chapter 6 helps us deal with both kinds of doubt. So, our big idea for our text today is this. Jesus loves when we come to him with our doubts. For some of you, that might be a shocking statement. Maybe you've never heard something like that said at church. But you heard me right. Jesus loves doubters. So if you're here today and you're struggling with doubt, you, like all of us, need to come to the real Jesus with our honest doubts. So we're going to address the two kinds of doubt in John 6, doubting Jesus' love for us and doubting Jesus' truthfulness. And we're going to get some help along the way with those kinds of doubt. And then at the very end, we're going to look at the solution to all of our doubts. And before I get any, into my points, I just want to acknowledge doubt is a really heavy subject. Like many of us have watched people we love reject and walk away from Jesus, and it's hard. And there might be someone here who today has walked away from Jesus, and I'm sure that was an emotional experience. So I just, when I come to the subject, I just feel so inadequate, so I want to pray and ask for God's help. And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we need you this morning. Help both me as I, as I preach, as I speak, Lord, your word, and help our church as a whole to have mercy on those who doubt, Lord. May this be a place where you can have questions about Jesus, and you're going to have people that care about you and love you and want to point you to Jesus in a way that's loving and gracious and nuanced and all these things, Lord. Lord Jesus, you say in this chapter that it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So Holy Spirit, I pray you would convict and convert through the preaching of your word this morning. Point us all to Christ. And Lord, even when we struggle, help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I pray that as we believe, you give us life in his name. Amen. So 
In this chapter, the very beginning, Jesus had miraculously fed a crowd of 5,000 people. And what Jesus did for the crowd here is actually a pretty big, pretty big deal. Like, in this time period, the average person had very little food security. So this crowd's fired up. Jesus just gave them tons of food. And actually, they're so impressed with Jesus that the text says they actually wanted to start a rebellion against the Roman Empire. They wanted to force Jesus to be the king of Israel because they liked him so much, because of what he did. But earthly political revolution wasn't Jesus' thing. His mission was to bring the kingdom of God to earth. So Jesus escapes the crowds by miraculously walking across the Sea of Galilee, you know, like normal people do when they want to get out of an awkward situation, walk across the water. But eventually, the crowd makes it across the lake and they track Jesus down. And remember, this is the first century. These are devout, Bible-believing people. They reference Bible verses when they're asking Jesus questions, like in verse 31. They have respect for spiritual authority. They call Jesus rabbi. And they're seeking Jesus in a way. They took a three-mile boat ride to find him. So you think Jesus would be a little impressed by their effort. But he's not. Not even a little bit. He says in verse 26, Truly, truly I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's like, you guys just wanted lunch. Like, he's calling out their motivations. And he says, because of that, you misunderstood what the signs are pointing to, which is me. But you know what I love about Jesus in this story? What he wants to give the crowds is actually much better than what they think they need, what they're coming to him for. And he's just trying to help them see that. He calls them out so he can call them into his grace. And he does the same with us. So Jesus lays out his offer in uh, verse 27. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And we're going to see in a second, the crowd profoundly misunderstands everything about this statement. And to be fair to them, this is kind of cryptic. But this statement from Jesus is actually a gracious invitation. It's not a riddle. He wants them to receive some very beautiful promises from him. So we're going to look at those three gracious promises Jesus is calling us today to receive from him in this first section. And the first is free grace. So Jesus says this thing in verse 27 about uh, don't, not working for the bread that perishes. And then uh, the crowd responds in verse 28. What must, we, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That could also be read as what must we do to be working the works of God? So the crowd's like, okay, Jesus, you want to give us eternal life? We get it. Give us a list. Come on, we'll do our best. What we see here in verse 28 that the crowd says is eerily timeless. Like it's been hardwired into us since the Garden of Eden. Just like Adam hid from God in shame after the fall, after he fell into sin, these people are deeply suspicious of God's grace. So Jesus is like, all right, y'all taking notes? Be sure to jot this one down. Here's everything you've got to do to receive eternal life. You ready for it? Believe in me. He says in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, I think the first instinct of our hearts when we hear a verse like this is like something like this. Eternal life by sheer grace and not based on what we can do. That sounds really great, but come on, what's the catch? Like, show us the fine print. A survey from the early 2000s 
found that 75% of Americans, that's three out of four Americans, believe that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is taught in the Bible. They think that's a Bible verse. And I'm telling you, the devil must have a really good PR department because not only is this not a verse in the Bible, this idea is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Like, the Bible continually teaches that God helps those who cannot help themselves. It teaches that people are spiritually dead in their sin unless God gives them spiritual life through Jesus. And grace is God giving sinners like us the exact opposite of what we deserve. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the first thing he offers is free grace. The next thing is spiritual fulfillment. So the crowd asked Jesus, okay, so you were sent just like Moses. Great. So how about you give us some bread like Moses did? And Jesus responds with this. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus says, I've actually come to give you something better than just your daily needs. And of course, Jesus cares about our daily needs, but he wants to give us something better. The crowd's not tracking with him, though. They don't get what he's saying, and their mind's on lunch. They say, give us this bread always. They think he's like offering unlimited breadsticks at Olive Garden. (laughs) But Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, here's a scary question for all of us. Why don't we like being alone with our thoughts? Like, why do we always need to be doing something, watching something, on our phone, talking to someone? Like, why are we so afraid of the quiet? It's because we're afraid to confront our own spiritual poverty. We don't want to face the fact that without God, we're empty. And so we do everything we can. So much of our life is trying to solve this problem without God. But it's like catching the wind. Augustine, an early church father from Africa, he gives us the same answer Jesus gives in verse 35. Augustine writes, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. So Jesus offers eternal life as a free gift of God's grace. He offers fulfillment for our deepest desires in himself. But there's something else going on here with the bread of heaven language. So have you ever heard someone say something like this? I believe in God if he revealed himself to me. Like if God just proved himself to me, then I believe. Well, I think Jesus explodes that idea, totally destroys that idea here in verse 36. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. So what Jesus is referring to is this crowd witnessed Jesus do all kinds of miracles, and they still rejected him. And the four gospel accounts about Jesus are filled with stories of people like this, which shows us that evidence by itself is not enough. The crowd said back to Jesus back in verse 30, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They essentially said, Prove us to yourself, Jesus. But instead of that, Jesus offers this assurance. He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Have you ever had the thought that maybe Jesus will reject me if I come to him? Or maybe it's not that extreme. Maybe like you believe in Jesus, but you just have this low-grade sense that Jesus, he's just kind of over you. Like, he's tired of your mess. He's tired of dealing with you. But Jesus knows our spiritually anxious hearts so well. Dane Orland points out in his book, Gentle and Lowly, that the English in verse 37 doesn't really convey the emphasis of the Greek, in ver- the Greek here. So never here is a double negative. So Jesus is basically saying, the one coming to me, I will not not cast out. Or, I will most certainly never ever cast out the one coming to me. John Bunyan, uh, the author of the book Pilgrim's Progress, he loved verse 37 so much that he wrote a whole book on it. It's my, my favorite verse too, so I get it. Um, and here's what, here's what he wrote about this absolutely stunning invitation of verse 37. It's not on your screen, I'm just going to read it. But I am a great sinner, you say, but I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, you say, but I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say, but I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, you say, but I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, you say, but I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have nothing good to bring with me, you say, but I will never cast you out, says Christ. Raise your objections. None can threaten these invisible words, but I will never cast you out. So what this means is if you've never come to Jesus, you've got to do it today. Like, don't wait until you're older. Don't wait until you have kids. Don't wait for your next life crisis. Definitely don't wait until you fit the mold of a good church person. And please, please don't wait to be free of your feelings of fear and doubt. Like, you're always going to have questions. You're always going to have doubts. If you tarry until you're better, you'll never come at all. So come to Christ today. He'll never cast you out. And if you've already come to Christ, like, don't stop coming to him. The verb here for come in in aorist tense in Greek, which indicates a continual going to Christ. Like, we go to Jesus once at the time of our salvation and then a million times after. So Jesus continues in verses 38 through 40. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he gave to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what Jesus is saying here. He's telling us the reason why he came down from heaven. He says that in eternity past, before the world was even created, the Father gave a people over to the Son. And now the Son of God has come down from heaven in order to save those very people. And Jesus says he's going to accomplish his mission perfectly. Like not a single one of the people that he's been tasked by the Father to save is ever going to be lost eternally. Now, Notice something with me in verse 40. I'm going to read it again. Everyone who looks in the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
So it might sound like Jesus is just repeating for Ephesus here, but this is really important to realize. Having eternal life and being raised up at the last day is actually referring to two different events in this verse. The text says, everyone who believes in the Son has eternal life now, and they will also be saved from the wrath of God at the final judgment. So in other words, when Jesus saves someone, he keeps them saved. He loses nothing of all the Father gives him. A theologian named R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, When God writes our names in the Lamb's book of life, he doesn't do so with an eraser handy. Now, you might be familiar with this idea. It's often referred to as the doctrine of eternal security. And it means that no true believer, keyword true believer, in Jesus will ever lose his or her salvation. And of course, yes, professing Christians can and do fall away from the faith. And that's actually what a lot of them do in this chapter. But their falling away shows they never knew Jesus. For those who have been truly converted to Christ will never fully and finally turn away from following him because of God's power in us. Now, okay, if you hear all this and you think of this as just like an abstract doctrine, you're really missing the point. Grasping this truth that Jesus is eternally, undefeatably for us, and driving it deep down into the depths of your being will actually change the way you live your life. So, I recently admitted to myself, a long time coming, I'm kind of afraid of flying. So my wife and I went on a trip out west for our fourth wedding anniversary, and this is the first time I flew in like a year and a half since the pandemic. And the flight, flight back, I've flown a lot, um, still going to fly, but the flight back was hands down, the most turbulent plane ride I've ever been on. And let me tell you, there is nothing better for my prayer life than a bumpy plane ride. (laughs) And you know the thing that makes me feel worse is like, I feel like I'm the only one who's scared. Like, everyone's either sitting there like, either genuinely not scared, or at least they're playing it cool. Like, I'm cool, just watching a movie, you know? (laughs) Like, I'm sitting there getting ready to fall 30,000 feet to my death. And Alyssa is sitting there watching Chip and Joanna Gaines, eating those little Biscoff cookies, like, look at that backsplash they put in there. Those granite countertops really make that kitchen pop. Now let me ask you something. Did my feelings about plane rides affect in any way the fact that the plane was going to get to the Chicago airport? Like, Alyssa and I were having pretty different experiences, we're having different, pretty different feelings about the plane ride. We're both going to the same place if we're on the plane. Or how about this? Did my fears about the safety of the flight affect in any way the actual safety of the flight? I looked it up. The odds of being in a fatal accident on a plane is 0.17 out of a million. And me being afraid doesn't lower or raise that. But most importantly of all, even though I had doubts about aviation safety, I got on the plane. And this passage shows us the same things are true of us if we're, in, if we're in Christ, if we've come to Christ. It shows us that our changing feelings are no match for Jesus' promises to save us. Our fears of losing our grip on Jesus don't change in any way the fact that he's tightly holding on to us. It's not the strength of our faith, it's the object of our faith, Jesus. And even if we bring our doubts as we come to Jesus, it doesn't impact his ability to save us. But we have to come to him. We have to believe in him. So, do you know this clear and vivid assurance of Jesus' love? 
that he's never going to cast you out, that he's given you eternal life, and he's going to raise you up at the last day. Because if you don't have this assurance of, you don't have this assurance of Jesus' love, I'm telling you, your growth as a Christian is going to be stagnant. You're going to lack joy and peace and contentment. And I've also noticed, if we think about mission, right, that almost nothing makes Christians feel more guilty than the question, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? How'd that go? Listen, until you're assured of God's love for you, evangelism is going to feel like a chore. Either that or you'll just be paralyzed by fear. That's because the best evangelists know, at the end of the day, I'm a child of God. Like, no matter how bad of a communicator I am, no matter how people respond to me, no matter what people say about me, Jesus loves me. And nothing can ever change that. So we address one kind of doubt, the doubt when we doubt Jesus' love for us. And to deal with that, we saw that Christ offers us free grace, spiritual fulfillment, and unconditional acceptance. Next, we're going to consider what to do when we lack confidence that Christianity is even true. So, yeah, point two, doubting Jesus' truthfulness. So, what Jesus offers these people is stunning. But sadly, they totally miss out on the beauty of what he's saying. So what I'm going to zero, zero in on in this first section, or this, this section, second section, what I want to focus on is the way Jesus deals with the objections to the crowd, of the crowd. And we have a lot to learn about doubt from the way Jesus handles this crowd. So let's just look through it. So here's some of the objections people raise to Jesus' teaching. In verse 42, they say, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Have you ever been like in a circular conversation before? Like you're saying the same things over and over again. It's like really frustrating. Well, that's basically what most of John chapter 6 is. The crowds come to Jesus with these objections. He answers. They don't like his answers. Jesus clarifies, but doubles down his original answer. Then they lob new objections at him. They don't like his answers again. Jesus doubles down again. They're upset, so on and so forth. All in all, this conversational cycle happens three total times in John 6. And one commentator looked at these conversations here in John 6 and even said, said this. He said, When Jesus' statements provoke and vex, he does not accommodate his message to his audience's ability to understand or accept it. But instead, he exacerbates the problem. Like, this doesn't seem like an effective evangelism strategy, does it? So why does Jesus do this? Well, he does this because he knows there's something deeper going on behind these questions. Like, the questions and objections of the crowd are really just a smokescreen. I said before, doubt's a complex phenomenon. I, re- I recognize that. There may be a lot of reasons why a person is tempted to doubt God. Two big ones I can think of are the lived experience of suffering or uh, hurt from the church. Those are two big ones I can think. This text doesn't cover every single aspect and nuance of doubt, so I'm not going to be addressing all of the, all of the nuances. But I just, wanted to, I just want to unpack two causes of doubt and deconstruction that we do see here in John 6. So why do people reject Jesus? Well, the first reason we see is shallow understanding. So Jesus says, starting in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this is a pretty graphic sermon illustration. Like, personally, I'm sticking with embarrassing plain stories. And the crowd does not like Jesus' illustration. They say in verse 52 again, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So I hope it's obvious that Jesus wasn't being literal with what he said here. What he means by this is that we are to feed on him by faith and receive eternal life from him. He was using physical objects, bread in the human body, to teach spiritual truths. So what I find really interesting then about the objections is that they're based on a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus is trying to say. And likewise, many people, and I found it's especially people who grow up in the church and then leave, reject Christianity based on a shallow understanding of what Christianity even is. So kind of going back to that story about Abraham Piper, who I mentioned earlier, I actually ended up watching some of his videos on TikTok. Like, he has this one video where he takes a verse in Ecclesiastes and then makes fun of what he thinks is teaching. And I'll be honest with you, these are some clever little videos. Like, they're funny. They have a persuasive power to them, and I actually started to feel some doubt rise up in me. But then I thought afterwards and I, about what he's actually said. I'm like, if you take away the humor, if you take away the wordplay, if you definitely take away the fact that he's the son of a big-name preacher, his actual argument is really weak on paper. Like, I could give you right now some more convincing arguments I've heard against the Bible than he gives you. And what, what's also interesting is the way Abraham Piper interprets the Bible is the same wooden way that the crowds interpret Jesus' words here in this very passage. Like, I don't know any Christians, genuine Christians, who interpret the Bible the way Abraham Piper does, just like I don't know any Christians who take Jesus' word literally and eat human flesh, unless we need to talk after the service. <laughs> but if, if Piper interpreted Shakespeare the way he interprets Ecclesiastes, he wouldn't have made it through his high school English class. But okay, I recognize that this, is, this is, happens a lot. People sometimes have good teaching, and then yet... They just don't believe in Jesus. Like, I'm sure John Piper taught his son how to read the Bible. I mean, the crowds in John 6 had Jesus himself teaching them. doesn't get better than that. What I'm saying here is that Abraham knows what he's doing with the videos. Like, he knows how to get a rise out of people who have just enough of an understanding of Christianity to think they understand it. And maybe that's because they grew up in a church that was gospel light or avoided hard parts of the Bible. Or maybe they even received just false teaching like the prosperity gospel. Or maybe, this is probably most cases, they grew up in a church that was technically solid on paper, but it was a place where questions and doubts were dismissed and shut down. And there was a lack of care in the answers people gave. It was very a pat answer. And unfortunately, I've met a lot of people who've had that experience. And that's you this morning. I just want to say I'm so sorry. That's awful. But the question I have for my skeptical friends this morning is this. Do you understand Christianity enough to reject it? You may not. You may, the faith you may have walked away from was maybe a complete misunderstanding. I invite you to consider that. So the first thing is shallow understanding. The next thing is just sin. So in this chapter, the main explanation Jesus actually gives for why people are rejecting him is unbelief, sin. If you read John 6 a couple times, you may notice it mentions things a lot like the people grumbled, Moses, in the wilderness, and bread from heaven. And that's because this chapter is a, basically one big retelling of Numbers in the Old Testament. 
Numbers is a massively underrated book of the Bible. It has a lot to teach us about human nature. And so the book of Numbers, it records the wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness after they were brought out of Egypt. So everything happens with Egypt. They're in the wilderness, not in the promised land yet. And one of the biggest themes in the book is the unbelief of God's people that prevents most of them, all but two of them who escaped Egypt, from entering the promised land. And despite all the grace God shows them, the people, and all that God's done for them, the people constantly test God, they complain, they ask for proof like they do here. And God finally brings judgment on those who continue to reject him through unbelief. And the people are doing the same things with Jesus here in John 6. Now, okay, are you ready for a crazy Bible connection? So Jude 5 says, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude is referencing the book of Numbers, events that took place in the book of Exodus. But what's crazy, what's crazy about this is that the actual name of Jesus is not mentioned in Exodus or Numbers. So Jude is claiming that it was the pre-incarnate Christ, it was Jesus who led the people out of Egypt, and that in the wilderness afterward, Jesus was the one who brought judgment on those who did not believe. Okay, so maybe you're thinking at this point, hold up. All right, you, you told me that Jesus loves me when I come to him with my doubt. But now you're saying Jesus destroys people who don't believe. Like, what's the deal, bro? Like, what's going on? What's going on here is that there is such a thing as honest doubt and dishonest doubt. Like, there's a difference between faith seeking understanding and understanding seeking faith. And these things can, they can often look really similar from the outside, but beneath the surface are different. So let me give you two examples to illustrate this. So one, first thing, in the Gospels, when you look at the times when people come to Jesus and they say things like, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus is always like, of course I'll help you out. I would love to help you out. And then he helps them. So when people are teachable, Jesus loves to teach them. He has so much grace. But when they come to him like they do in John 6, saying things like, what sign do you have that we may see and believe in you? He utterly refuses to play their game. When people who already have their mind up, minds made up fold their arms and ask for proof, Jesus moves on to someone else. So the question for all of us, really, are you, seeking, are you actually seeking answers to your questions? Or do you just want confirmation for the way you're already living? Jay Budzewiski, it's hard to pronounce, sorry, Polish people. Jay Budzewiski <laughs> is a philosophy professor who used to be an atheist, so he didn't believe in God. He ended up becoming a Christian, and he wrote about it in a moving essay called Escape from Nihilism. And I absolutely love what he writes about how he, he arrived at his former atheistic views. Why didn't he believe in God? Well, he reflects. He writes, Because I had committed certain sins that I didn't want to repent of. Because the presence of God made me more and more uncomfortable, I began looking for reasons to believe that he didn't exist. It's a funny thing about us human beings. Not many of us doubt God's existence and then start sinning. Most of us sin and then start doubting his existence. Now, we, we can dance around all day, be around the bush, but the truth is that the real reason some people either reject the Christian faith or leave the Christian faith is because they want to have sex with whoever they want. Or whatever the thing may be. It could be money, 
or social acceptance. Jesus says in John 3 that uh, people don't come to him because they have sin and they want their works to be exposed. And he says, when they come to me, their works are going to be exposed. Now, if you have honest doubts and legitimate questions, I want to reiterate, you can bring those to Jesus and he'll help you work through them. You can say, I believe, help my unbelief, and he'll help you. But if you're committed to rejecting Jesus until he sufficiently proves himself to you, then don't be surprised that you've never gotten proof. And again, thinking through mission, if you're a Christian wanting to share Jesus with someone, how, how do we know if someone's doubts and objections are honest or if they're a smokescreen, they're a cover-up? To figure that out, I often like to ask my skeptical friends a simple question, and it's this. If Christianity were true, would you believe it? Now, it may surprise you, but I've actually talked to real people many times who said to me, no, even if Christianity were true, I wouldn't believe it. And this shows us that in the final analysis, unbelief is more about is, is not about rationality. It's about rebellion against God. And eight times out of ten, and when you get an answer like this, it's probably a good sign that you need to shake the dust off your feet and move on to someone who's more receptive, at least for now. Obviously, use your discernment, but in general, go where the fish are biting. And don't don't get frustrated or discouraged when this happens. Like, look at how Jesus reacts to unbelief here in this, pack, this passage. He's not beating himself up for his presentation. Uh, he's not beating himself over what people are saying or how they're responding. He just says things like this in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the word for draw here is the same word that is used in the book of Acts to describe when Paul is dragged into court. And so what that means is sin has such a powerful hold that Jesus says no one can come to him unless they're basically dragged to him by God's power. Now, okay, this doesn't mean we're robots or something like that, but that only the Holy Spirit can remove the scales from someone's eyes so they can see the beauty of Jesus and come to him. And the Spirit does this primarily through the preaching of God's word, through the word of God. So what this means for us so we don't have to stress when people continue to reject the gospel. It's not about us. We keep praying for them. We pray for a more receptive season so we can try again. And for now, we can focus on someone who's ready to listen. They want to hear about Jesus. And at the end of the day, we can lay our head on the pillow at night and trust that God knows what he's doing. He's still good. So why do people reject Jesus? Well, our text shows us at least two of the reasons are shallow understanding, and sin. We also address doubt in the sense of struggling to embrace Christ's love for us. And then we just saw through doubt in the sense of struggling to believe that Jesus is the real deal. Lastly, third point, let's look at the solution to all of our doubts. So we've reached, in this part of John 6, we've reached the climax of our story here. There's been this whole controversy, this back and forth between the crowd and Jesus and this all comes to a conclusion in verse 66. It says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So the, cry, the crowds decide they've had enough with Jesus. This is like their deconversion announcement post on social media. They're hashtag exvangelical now. But listen to what happens next. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? 
Simon Peter answered him, I love this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what, what makes Peter answer like this? Well, it's because he knows who Jesus is. He's let the real Jesus define who he really is. So Peter's reply in verse 68 teaches us two things that I think will keep us from walking away from Jesus. The first thing is the character of Christ. So Peter realizes there's never been anyone like Jesus. There will never be anyone that compares to Jesus. Napoleon Bonaparte, the general who conquered most of Europe in the 1800s, after the collapse of his empire, he was uh, exiled to an island, and he was sitting in the last days of his life, reflecting on his life. He actually wrote this. He said, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. And he's, Napoleon's right. If Jesus really is God himself who has come down into the world, as he says, doesn't it make sense that his character would have this massive of an impact historically? So the first thing Peter realizes is the character of Christ. The second thing he realizes is the heart of Christ. Often, I think the version of Jesus that we believe in, or maybe don't believe in, says a lot more about us than it does about Jesus. Like, we're really good at mapping ourselves onto Jesus. Like, we think he's like us. Sometimes when I listen to people describe what they think Jesus is all about, I think, that just sounds like what you're about. Like, some people believe in a, a socialist Jesus. Some people believe in a Republican Jesus. Some people believe in, like, this tolerant, new-age Jesus who accepts all lifestyles, and he believes there's so many paths to God. He's not the only way. And a lot of people, a lot of people, believe in a Jesus who's like this vindictive figure who just can't wait for them to mess up so he can smite them. There's a band called Brand New that has a song called Limousine. And it's, it's a real bummer of a song. It's pretty, it's a downer. But <laughs> there's this one line that I think really captures how a lot of people tend to view Jesus. It says, In the choir, I saw a sad Messiah. He was bored and tired of my laments. He said, I died for you one time, but never again. When I preach a message like this, I'm like worried. I, I just pray and think about people this morning who this is the Jesus they believe in. Like a sad Messiah who's bored and tired of my lens. Like, that's not Jesus. Can we just say that? Like, this, this chapter shows us that. And I think that shows us how much we base our view of who Jesus is on our culture, on our experiences, on our feelings. But guys, we have to get our view of who Jesus is from the Bible. Dane Orland writes that one of the greatest challenges of the Christian life is to let the Bible correct our natural instincts about who God is. So if you're a Christian here this morning, is your view of Jesus in line with the Jesus we see in Scripture or the Jesus we see here in John 6? Jesus is far more loving and gracious than many of us believe he is this morning. And if you're not a Christian this morning, my question for you is, again, are you rejecting the real Jesus? Just a caricature. Like, I really hope, I really hope and pray you wouldn't miss out on the joy 
of knowing Jesus, just because you've been given a counterfeit version of him. So embrace Christ, his character and heart, as the Bible presents him. And friends, if you do that, whenever you see a famous Christian leader, maybe even your own pastors, have a scandal, whenever you see a dear friend walk away from Jesus, or even if your kids or your spouse or your family or whatever reject Jesus, you'll be able to say, man, this is really, really hard. I'm praying so hard with all my being that they come back to Jesus. But I'm still sticking with Jesus because he's been so good to me. During these times, Jesus will confront you with this very question. Do you want to go away as well? I know for me, the easiest remedy, the quickest remedy to times of doubt is just remembering what my life was like before I knew Jesus. Like, you could give me all the money in the world. I would never in a million years want to go back to my life before Jesus. To whom shall we go? There's nobody like Jesus. Nobody has his heart for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have a simple invitation for every single one of us in this room this morning. That's to come to you. I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't put their trust in you, Jesus, I pray they would do that today, right now. I pray they wouldn't wait, Lord. They would come to you, Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, that you don't turn us away if we come to you. What a comfort to know that we can bring our honest doubts to you, Lord. We can bring our mess. We can bring our sin to you, Lord, and lay it at your feet and say, help me. Help me work through this, Lord. Jesus, you're the one we've always been looking for, even if we never realized it. Show us that all the answers to our deepest questions of our heart are found in you. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast.